0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. This BFM Budget 2024 special is brought to you by Masing. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. With the rising cost of living, unaffordable housing, rising inequality and stagnating wages, Malaysians face mounting challenges. This is especially true if you're working class and middle class. With the tabling of Budget 2024 just around the corner, on today's episode, we will be taking a look at what needs to be addressed in the upcoming budget to bridge the gap between the haves and the haves not. Joining me to discuss this is Sivrajan Arumugam. He's the Secretary General of Party Socialist Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Siva. How are you?
1: Uh, thank you, Darshan. Good for having me. Thank you. Now, yesterday,
0: Party Socialist Malaysia handed over a memorandum to Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim concerning Budget 2024. Before we dive deeper into this discussion, Siva, talk to me about the memorandum that you you and um, the uh, Chairperson of Party Socialist Malaysia, Dr. Jay Kumar, um, handed over to the Prime Minister. What was that all
1: about? Uh, well, Dashan, actually, this process uh, started off a couple of months ago. So back in June, actually, uh, PSM, we had a workshop uh, with some prominent uh, economists, like Prof. Jomo, Professor Geoffrey, and many others who participated. And this workshop was mainly to get ideas on how the government can increase its uh, federal revenue. Because you know, we as a socialist party, we're always very good at proposing social programs uh, to uplift the community. But there's always a question put to us that, okay, all these programs are very good for the poor, uh, to enhance our social protection, but where do we get the money? How right. does the government increase its revenue? So to answer this question, what we did is that we had a couple of workshops. We had some uh, consultations with some key economists. And so this memorandum was basically drafted from the input and from our own discussions with our policy bureau in PSM. And uh, so this whole memorandum, we wanted to sort of summit to the finance ministry, uh, namely tatusri Anwar before the budget um, so hopefully the ideas that we present in here so we talked about many things like we talked about taxes we talked about subsidy rationalization how to improve governance uh, prevent leakages so there's a whole lot of things in that uh, proposal that we submitted to anwar and also the deputy minister steven sim uh, we hope that some of these ideas will be picked up will be discussed and of course psm we are always ready to have any kind of engagement with the ministry
0: so I want to talk to you later about like what you just mentioned, right? How the government can, you know, increase their federal revenue and how they can fund some of these social programs that you're talking about. Um, so let's talk. Mm-hmm. But but before we get to that, let's talk about some of the challenges that Malaysians are facing. So um, Siva, what are the key challenges that the Malaysian masses are facing right now, especially when we look at, let's say, um, the B40 and the urban poor first?
1: Yeah, I think the the main challenges that the B forty will be facing would be the rising cost of living. Um, I think we would have seen the food costs have really increased um, since COVID. We have found that because of logistic problems, the food costs have increased and it has not gone down. And uh, you have seen the problem with the rice, uh, also with the problem with um, the other amenities like onions and so on. I think this was also reflected if you really talk to some of the businesses that they have also seen a decrease in the number of people who are going out to eat. I mean, yes, you know, Malaysians, we like to eat out, right? But I think the, even the retail, the businesses, they have already seen a, a reduction in this. So this clearly reflects that people are holding back on their money. They really don't have so much of money to spend. And besides not going out to eat, I think uh, for them to cook food at home is also expensive. We have seen the increase in the, 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 the food prices rise, like I said, onions and all the basic necessities. So I think the B40 is really having a lot of problem. If you look at a lot of the uh, household surveys, we find that most of the B40 families, they have two big categories where they spend the most money. One is on food. The other one is on amenities. Amenities meaning that paying for water, electricity, housing, and et cetera. So clearly when the food prices have increased, it has really impacted them a lot. Now, I would, I would see that this would really impact on their food pattern. Uh, probably the government really needs to look at at this particular time to do some kind of survey to really see that half the food pattern, the consumption among the B40 families have changed because mm-hmm. we don't want to be shocked by another report to say that one out of five children in Malaysia, they have stunted growth and so on. So I think it's very crucial for the government to make sure that people are eating nutritious food and uh, the food prices are kept low. So for the B40, I think this would be the main challenges they are, they are, they are, they are really facing at the moment.
0: As we know, Malaysians, um, when we look at the problems, um, it is not just um, challenges faced by the B40, although they face the the large scale brunt of it, but even middle class people um, face tremendous challenges in in today's climate. What what are the challenges um, um, that are faced by
1: Malaysian middle class people? I think middle class. I would say that um, the wages have the real wages have not increased. It right. really look at uh, the increase in rail wages, which was prior to 2019, we only saw about 5% or maybe 3% of increase in rail wages. Um, rail wages, we mean that uh, wages taking into account the increase in your consumer price index. Because if we really look, just look at your salary, that your take-home salary, obviously you might see an increase, but that does not really reflect on whether your purchasing power has increased or not. Hmm. So when you really do a sort of like a calculation based on your increase in the consumer price, uh, using the CPI index, and with that it will actually tell you that uh, your rail wages is not actually as high uh, as what you actually take back home. So rail wages is more reflective of the purchasing power that you might have. I mean, how how much value that each ringgit carries actually. Right. So, if you really look at real wages, um, it has really slumped, especially during the COVID times. Uh, we saw a slump of uh, more than 7%. Uh, it took a dive there and it really has not really cashed up. Uh, I remember that um, last year, if not mistaken, there was a lot of discussions why graduates are earning less than 2000 ringgit, you know? So, we also find professionals, graduates uh, earning less than 2000 ringgit because this was really what was happening in the labor market that wages were very, very low. And the only now that we can see that are slowly picking up. The other things that we can say that this also is reflective on that the middle class would not have much savings to go about with increase in cost of living. I think most of them are just living from paycheck to paycheck. Hmm. The other trend that we also find with the current labor force is that there's no real job security uh, compared to the labor market, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, where people could really work in a place, have kind of have security, and they could raise a family and they could retire happily. But I think nowadays, most people they just go by yearly contracts, if not two-year contracts. So they really would not know what is going to happen after two years. So it's very difficult without having a permanent job and you know that your salary is secure the other cause the other issues of course that we have discussed many times is the, the basic issue of house prices right i think the middle class purchasing houses today is like a pipe dream you know mm-hmm. uh basically because the housing prices have never come down and they're really having a big problem so what they have to sort of like uh, go on with is that the you know, prices of high prices of houses but in terms of the square feet where they have to sort of uh, uh, purchase a house is a very small square feet. Right. So I think these are the much of the challenges I think the middle class are uh, facing. Besides, also I think what they will also have a problem is paying for healthcare, paying for I mean uh, it's children's education, taking care of the elderly, and we have seen that all of this is is going on the on the hike now. Right. So these are the multiple challenges I would also think that the middle class are facing. And um, the economy is, as far as the labour market is concerned, I don't think it has recovered fully from the the beatings that we took during COVID. Now, PSM has
0: consistently championed the plight of the farmers in Malaysia. Um, What are the challenges faced
1: by Malaysian farmers today? I think it's very important that especially where uh, PSM has been doing some groundwork. Now, this is basically the constituency of the Prime Minister himself in Tambun Perak. where we have seen so many cases of farmers who have been toiling the land, providing vegetables, food crops for decades. Uh, They are being evicted. They are being evicted from their lands. And these are not squatters, you know, because these people, when they started farming in these lands, uh, they cleared the land, they made the land fertile and so on. And they have applied for land grants for many, many years, but always they were turned down, you know. They started paying paying TOL, And they also applied for the land grants for many, many years. But the the district office, the land office always turned them down. And suddenly one day they find that the land which they've been working on for more than 30 years is being alienated to another private entity. They don't know who is this. Now, why is there this problem? Why is a third party given preference to alienate the land while these people have been asking for the land for for, for many, many years. Right. They are willing to pay rents. They are willing to buy the land if they are able to. I mean, they are willing to, I mean, as sincere businessmen, as sincere people, farmers who are working on the land, they also want to have some kind of security. And suddenly this land is being taken over by, by many, many parties. It can be private parties and also the state government development body. In right. this case would be the Parag development and also the agricultural uh, wing of the Parag state government. They are the ones who are sort of alienated this land. They're developing this land for other purposes, not for food crops. Um, They're trying to do some uh, property development, uh, technological parks, and so on. So while the country is facing a rising cost in food products and our import bill is always increasing, why are you demolishing? Why are you evicting these farmers which are providing for the rakyat? This is a big issue which is still is unresolved today. We have got no positive response from the Parak government. And I think this is very important for the Prime Minister, especially in his own constituency, to really look at this matter and resolve it as soon as possible.
0: All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Sivarajan Arumugam. He's the SECGEN of Party Socialist Malaysia. After the break, we will be talking about solutions to some of the challenges um, Siva has mentioned in the first half of the show. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Stay tuned to BFM's Budget 2024 special, brought to you by Marsing. This BFM Budget 2024 special is brought to you by massing Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan, and with me, is Sivarajan Arumugam, Secretary General of Party Socialist Malaysia. And we're talking about how Budget 2024 can address the needs of the Marhain. So, Siva, before the break, you talked a lot uh, about the challenges faced by Malaysians today. So. How does PSM propose to allocate resources in Budget 2024 to uplift the working-class masses um, and provide them with better economic opportunities?
1: I think for the urban poor and the working-class masses, Mm -hmm. I think it is important that we uh, should look at why uh, people who have been uh, working, they have uh, jobs, they work 8 to 10 hours a day, and then they are still poor. Now, this is a question that we should ask ourselves. The problem that we have today is a problem of the uh, the working people. They are poor. The mm-hmm. poverty of the working people. Now this is the the problem. So I would think that uh, for PSM we should look at what is actually happening in these enterprises and these uh, bodies, these organizations which are creating this wealth. Because we know that wealth is created by the working people themselves. So what what is the wage disparity within these enterprises? And here is where we have to address uh, the issue itself. Right. So there is a key, a big issue about distribution of wealth, which is not shared equally within the enterprise. So when the, there are no clear policies on how, how much the disparity should be within the top management and the low-rung workers, what is going to happen is that there's going to be a huge disparity. Even we have seen it in the government-linked companies, companies like sign Derby and so on we'll find that the top executives, the CEO could be earning more than 200,000 per month, right. while the lowest rung worker could be only earning about 1,500 the minimum wage. So why is there such a huge disparity? Now, the failure of the government to address or not putting in place any kind of maximum wage within the enterprise itself. So the burden to handle the poverty of these workers, it falls on the shoulders of the government because we know the wealth is created in this enterprise. And then it is being usurped by the top management. So when these workers have no living wage, they are poor, it is the government which has to step in and to, to, to provide uh, handouts and benefits to these workers, while the executives in this enterprise, they, are, they just go scot-free. You know? Some of them get tax holidays and so on. So why is this thing happening? So I think it's very important for us to have in place certain policies, certain regulations, to make sure that within the institutions, within the enterprises, within the business uh, organizations which are creating this wealth, there must be a maximum wage, and then we must close the gap between the top executive salary and the workers in the lowest run. Only then we will find that wealth is distributed equally, and the government's burden of addressing poverty will be reduced. I think this is a very important issue that we should look at. Siva, what do you mean by imposing
0: a maximum wage? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I think what is important, I think now there's a lot of discussions about uh, progressive wage system and so right. on. Okay, that's another topic. Yep. But what I would look at is that there must be some kind of policy to say that the the disparity between the lowest-rung worker and the top CEO should not be like more than probably maybe 10 times. You no, know? So just to address the issue that... Uh, uh, there is a management class and there is a, a working class, a floor, uh, people are working on the floor and so on. But if you don't have any kind of guidelines or any kind of policies, I mean it's free for all, isn't it? Right. As I showed, as I explained in the early example, we have the top management earning about 20-30 times above the lowest-rung worker. But while we know the salaries of the top management, they are derived from the wealth which is created by the whole organizations and the majority of workers have contributed. So why is there the, the management is allowed to take a big chunk of the whole uh, the value of this? And this is reflected even according to what uh, the government has said and they are trying to address it now, whereby our compensation of employee share for the GDP has dropped uh, back in um, 2022. All right. It was 32% and now uh, we have dropped. We have dropped much lower. So this is a big problem where the workers' share of the GDP is dropping, and that's why we say that you no, know, we we have to increase the workers' uh, uh, value. The, their salary has to be increased, and the main core of this is that it has to be addressed within the institution. So we need to have a maximum wage, but of course, it is difficult to put up a single figure like we have done for the minimum wage. But I would argue that there should be a certain guideline on how many times the top executive should earn in comparison to the lowest run worker. So we should have something, maybe 1 to 10 or 1 to 15 or something like that. So that would be a guideline to make sure that the wealth within the industry, where, the, where actually the, the profits are gained, the wealth is created, is distributed among all of the workers.
0: So, just to move the conversation along, what measures does PSM propose to strengthen social safety nets and ensure that vulnerable populations have access to essential services like healthcare, education, um and, and so on and so forth um in, in budget twenty twenty-four? Because we know this is a massive issue as well, um, healthcare, especially with the privatization of healthcare over the past um, few decades.
1: Yeah. I think for the vulnerable community, what we have proposed also in the same uh, memorandum is that to for the government to introduce. We hope that in this budget, the government can introduce a elderly uh, pension scheme, eh? campaign pension warga emas, for all those who are above sixty five years to be paid five hundred ringgit monthly directly into their bank account. And for we have an exclusion of those who are receiving government pensions. Of course, they have some kind of uh, income security. But we're looking at the whole lot of the other people uh, who should receive a small uh, amount. 500 ringgit is not big. But I think it will really help to sort of ease the, the burden of cost of living uh, by the elderly person and also by the caretaker family. Uh, if they are given 500 ringgit every month. And this would only cost roughly about 11 billion uh, ringgit. Now, for some people, 11 billion, you know, it's a huge amount. How can we introduce this program? Right Now, we do not, should not forget that uh, what I was listening to the the news yesterday was that um, regarding our LCS combat uh, ships, the whole scandal on the LCS ship, if you remember, I think because of the delay in delivering the ships, now they are talking about only delivering the ships in 2029. The cost has increased now to 11 billion. So we are we are being burdened by a cost of 11 billion for five ships, combat ships, which we can never see. All right. So right. I think the 11 billion ringgit to benefit billions of elderly people, elderly folks in in Malaysia. I think it's a good investment to really uplift. Besides it, I think we are also proposing how the uh, the subsidies should be rationalized. Mm. It's very important that once the government does a rationalization, a more targeted subsidy, there must be extensive consultations with the people. They should have a lot of town hall meetings to explain to the people uh, how this rationalization is going to be uh, happening. Because when, for example, for example, like fuel, if you're going to have a, ra- a subsidy rationalization, obviously they might sort of float the price of uh, uh, gas in the, in the in the pumps, the oil pumps. And so that would drastically increase, for example, the price of RON 95. So to compensate that, there must be a direct uh, handout or a banking of the uh, certain amount of cash into those who are eligible, the B40. So there must be a system where they should be able to be compensated directly every month to pay for that increase in the fuel. And so this would help to target the subsidy a bit. But of course, we have to really make sure that all these things are laid out very clearly. What do we do to the people in the rural areas? How do we handle that? Because they besides using for transport, like cars and motorbikes, they also use diesel for their boats, especially like fishermen. So all these things has, be, has to be taken into account. So firstly, uh, subsidy rationalization is one big area. The other area we also talked about uh, how the, the government should increase the governance on how the handouts are being made and so on. So I think for for PSM, I think some of these proposals is very important, especially for the vulnerable groups. We also talked about uh, increasing the social net for gig workers, uh, the informal workers, and also in terms of healthcare, like we have been calling for this for a very long time to increase the healthcare budget. Because even though we might say that uh, we're only paying like a ringgit or five ringgit up up the counter whenever we go to the government hospitals but when you have operations when we have surgeries there are a lot of accessories a lot of medicines that you will need to buy and this costs a lot um, so i think the government must really invest to subsidize this extra cost when people go for medical treatment yes i think these are some of the proposals that we're looking at so I want to. You mentioned something
0: interesting, which is about gig workers. What is PSM's stance on the the situation of gig workers um, today? Because um, you know, gig workers do not get EPF, and and they certainly do not get pensions. Um, how do we um, sort of um, deal? with this issue of more and more people, um, you know, exiting high schools, for example, universities and and whatnot, and then entering the gig workforce, being e-hailing drivers, food delivery drivers, and so on and so forth. But there is no sort of security net there, um, and and there is no, um, you know, guaranteed wages um, of a certain level, um, you know, career growth and so on and so forth. How do we deal um, with the with the issue of um, gig workers and the potential exploitation of gig workers?
1: Yes, exactly. You know, because this whole concept of uh, how they have converted people who are providing their labor from, from the concept of being an employee of a particular organization, now we are considered a contractor, which is right. providing service to the company, you know? So this has sort of taken away all the job securities where uh, the most of the unions who have fought for all of these years. So now we're in a situation whereby people are working as gig workers, they are working freelance with no job security at all. So this is a very disturbing situation. So I think this we we have to regulate it because we know that if if you really look at how the business is being done, that it's a whole organization, the platform providers, those people who are who are providing the service, the big the companies they are making profits from this service which is provided by the workers but we don't see the connection on how the profits are returned or in a way shared with the the workers who are pro, who are who are, who are doing all of this work so that's why i think we really need to enhance their social protection because most of these workers they work as contractors uh, for service and and thus they will they can be terminated anytime they have no job security there's nothing really uh, laid out there to, for them to follow the existing Employment Act. So here is where I think the government really should step in. Because it's very clearly, we find that these business organizations, they are making a profit from the labor of the workers. So they must impose regulations. If a gig worker is traveling, a, a he-hailing driver, a delivery person is going, and if he meets, meets with an accident, what happens? Who takes Who's responsible for uh, that particular person to pay for his medical bills, to pay for his uh, whatever uh, payments when he is on uh, medical leave and so on. So here's where I think this whole system needs to be regulated and we really need to impose conditions and regulations on these big companies which are profiting to make sure they are able to uh, enhance the job security. Now we're not talking about like controlling the wages and so on, because that depends on even some of the gig hailing workers will say that, you no, know, please don't control the wages and so on. Now we will work as much as we can. You know, our hours of work is, is more free. We don't want to have any kind of regulations on that. But I think there should be more regulations on protecting them right. uh, in terms of insurance, in terms of social benefits, in terms of job security, uh, some kind of contributions for a savings funds, probably EPF. But we find that these things are still not in place yet. And uh, we should address these issues.
0: Can you also share specific um, recommendations aimed at improving the livelihood of farmers? Because um, towards the early part of the show, you talked about the challenges faced by the farmers. Um, What are the potential
1: solutions? I think for farmers, the main issue for them is uh, we need to do a serious uh, land reform. to provide the farmers with some kind of uh, land security. What we would call upon is that there must be a moratorium in the state-level government uh, on all arable land conversions. So if the land uh, is is productive, it's fertile, we should not allow it to be converted to some other uh, projects or property, for technological park, or for any other reasons. For this, I think there must be some kind of regulations put in place at the state level, because as you know, that uh, in Malaysia, the state has got full control over land matters. But the problem now is that most of the land matters are decided by one person, which is the chief minister, the Menteri Besar. There is no check and balance on him. you know, So he could alienate land. He does not really have any uh, idea on actually who is in the land at the moment. They are not advised properly. So what we would propose from PSM is that there should be a committee sort of overlooking how these lands are being alienated. So the Madri Basas powers are shared, uh, checked and balanced by this particular committee. And this committee should have consists of people who are uh, independent, um, civil society people, people who are also from different interest groups. They could be also from the local level. For example, if... A land which is supposed to identify to be alienated in one particular location we need representative from that particular location probably there could be a farmer which has been working on that land so we need him to come up there and speak what is what are his issues you know right so that kind of right. check and balance is very necessary so that this kind of uh, stepping on the farmer's land does not happen and we have seen it so many many times that whereby uh, I mean the 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 land office knows is completely ignorant on actually who has been actually farming there. Maybe they are uh, they are doing it uh, deliberately, but uh, this is completely they alienate the land to a third party, and a third party goes to court, gets an eviction order, and evicts these farmers. This should not happen. This should not happen. So that's why that we find that there should be an oversight committee to make sure that the lands, especially. Uh, farming land, arable land should not be converted, should not be alienated to a third party. The other thing also I think the farmers are calling for that if in event the state government does not want to give a grant, land grant to them, at least give them a lease, give them some kind of security, and it must be no less than 10 years. I mean, if you go, if the state government is saying, like in some cases we find that they say that, okay, we will lease this land to you on a yearly basis. And how is that possible? How is the farmer going to make investments on the land, providing irrigation, doing all the land works, if he's only given the land for a year? After that one year, after he spent all of this money, is he going to be asked to be leave the land? So there must must be some kind of security to tell the farmer, look, you invest in this land, you do whatever that you want to make this land fertile, and we will ensure that you can have this land to be productive for the next 10 years. So there must be something like that something which is rational. The last thing I would say is that what we need is also some kind of reorganization in our supply chain, because mm-hmm. I think our supply chain now is a bit really messed up. The, uh, we need to really cut the middleman, which is making profits unreasonably. It does not mean that we don't need a middleman because of logistic purposes, but we really need to look at where the money is going, why, uh, the costs of uh, vegetables and uh, the daily consumption uh, in the market is so high. While the farmers are still living in poverty, so all of these matters, I think, really needs to be addressed. Going back to what you mentioned
0: um, at the at the top of the show, right? This idea that um, you know you recently held like a, a sort of um, roundtable, a discussion among some of the economists in the country, because the question always posed to you is that these are interesting um, um, solutions that y'all come up with, but how can the government um, actually? You know, fund all of these programs, and and that's um, something that I have to ask as well, right? Because when we're looking at, let's say, even the pension scheme for the elderly, I think that really stands out as something um, really, really important. But we are talking about five hundred ringgit per month per person. um, You know, you know, month on month on month, year on year on year, and this is going to take a lot of money, like you mentioned earlier, eleven billion. So for a lot of these social programs. How is the government going to fund these programs in a time where, um, whether it's the Malaysian government or many governments around the world, they talk about how they do not have um, enough money to spend on social programs?
1: Um, I think that's why there's, we really need to reform the tax policy and tax regime that we have today. Mm-hmm. Well, that does not mean that we should go uh, along the way of introducing a consumption tax. I mean, PSM, I think we are totally against any kind of regressive consumption tax. Right. Because like I said earlier, a reintroduction of GST, it is again going to cause another uh, spike in inflation. We saw that when GST was introduced in 2015, 2016, all prices of all goods went up and that really... uh, sort of really uh, make a bad bad, uh, hit on the people. And the price did not really go down. It it just basically tapered. And then even though in 2018, uh, GST was scrapped, uh, it was replaced by SST, the prices remained high. It did not really go down. So another round of GST, if the government decides to introduce next year, it's going to hike up the prices. And it's going to be the worst time because before GST itself, we already see Uh, high rise in food prices. So GST is not the way to go. What we would tell the government is that they should explore the other means of taxes, more progressive taxes, before immediately sort of rushing and saying that GST is the only way to go. I I think we really uh, do not agree to that kind of argument. We should look at more taxes. We are quite keen to see how the capital gains tax promised by um, Anwar's government to be implemented next year. How will that play out? That will be something which is positive. The luxury tax, the government should look at that. Uh, We also talked about the wealth tax for a long time. Mm -hmm. The wealth tax is something that the government should really seriously look at because we are proposing a wealth tax on only the billionaires. It's only a small group of people, 1%, maybe less than 1%, I would say, is more easily regulated. And obviously, it's not going to make anyone poor, okay? So the amount that the government can get uh, extra revenue by imposing the wealth tax is easily more than 20 to 30 billion a year, which could pay for a lot of the social protection uh, ideas that we talked about earlier. So uh, besides looking at the consumption tax, I think the government should first explore on how they could expand the whole landscape of progressive taxing first capital gains tax, luxury tax, wealth tax, inheritance tax. And in the event that all of these things is not enough, only then they should really consider any kind of consumption tax. But without that, they should not jump into that because it's going to burden the people uh, much more. Besides imposing a new tax, I think there's a lot of things that we should also look at. What are the existing tax uh, taxes that we are implementing? I think if you look at... Um, uh, if you look at the the benefits they are giving for or the program they they have for electronic vehicles uh, EV, I think EV is something which is really everyone is pushing for now. The government is really pushing hard for it. But I think there's a lot of uh, uh, the the tax leeway that they are giving, tax um, uh, they are waiving a lot of taxes for EV cars. But you have to also understand that while it is um, Renewable energy is not consuming fossil fuel and so on. But it is still still a a vehicle. It is still a car which is going to run on the same roads. So there is still wear and tear of the facilities, the roads that we still need to build and so on. So it's not to say that uh, when you have an EV and you get so much of tax waiving for all of these vehicles, that uh, is going to be a lot of savings, not really, because it's still another vehicle on the road. We should also look at maybe a carbon tax on those polluting industries, which is very important. And for PSM, we've always argued that we need to sort of increase our corporate tax, but we have to do it uh, in a regional basis. Malaysia cannot be the the only country. In ASEAN, we have to increase our corporate tax. Besides that also, we have to look at how much tax holidays we've been giving to most of these uh, companies which have come in to attract FDI. Uh, we have given them tax holidays and they've been going on for five years, 10 years. We never really reviewed them again. So there's a lot of money out there which we can really save. If we can really review uh, how much of tax holidays and tax waive that we have given to all these big, big companies who are continuously making profit from our own uh, resources and labor. And through that, I think there's a lot of money that we can save. So I would sum it up to say that we should go for uh, in the direction of a progressive tax first. We should review the tax regime that we have to see that where are the industries we are simply giving tax holidays, but it's really not benefiting us. We should uh, impose taxes on that. And with this new uh, revenue that we have, I think there's a lot of social protection programs we can already do without imposing GST. How would you differentiate progressive
0: tax and regressive tax? Um, what are the, the, the consequences, uh, so to speak, or the impact of each type of text on the common person? And, you know, we, we, why is there this disc, this discourse we often see, um, you know, from the Malaysian government and, and many governments, you know, do we need to reintroduce GST? Do we need to introduce GST? Um, but it is always that, right? Because I think most governments, including the Malaysian government, um, uh, you know, admit... That they need to raise funds. That, that they are. That the governments are severely underfunded, um, and, and you know you need to tax people to to raise these funds. But why is the conversation always around GST and never around all the various other taxes that you mentioned, um, which is capital gains tax, um, wealth tax, um, inheritance tax, carbon tax on these big companies? Why is the conversation always around GST?
1: Yeah, but I think also because of a lot of pushbacks by um, uh, many unions and social groups and so on, I think even globally, there is already some kind of understanding that there should be a minimum uh, corporate tax. I think they put it at 15% or something like that. Right. So that that argument, that narrative is already happening to say that uh, we should tax more on the rich people, we should tax more on 1%. So that thing is already happening now. Mm -hmm. But usually there's a lot of pushbacks from the corporate sector to say that, no, no, if you increase taxes, it's going to cross inflation. We're going to uh, retrench workers. And and, and it just argument just keeps going on that way. But I would come back to the earlier point that I was saying is that I think the if the government does not make the strong policies to increase corporate tax, to go after the, the rich and, and how much profits they're making, the burden to address poverty will always fall on the government's shoulders. Like I said earlier, because we have failed to address the whole issue on how wealth is being distributed, how workers in a particular uh, enterprise where wealth is created, how much wages they are getting. Because we find that a great disparity between the top management and then the workers. So we have failed to address this issue. So what is always happening is that uh, when the poverty issues that we are the ones who are handling, and that's that's the continuous dialogue that they want us to have to say that workers are not productive and so on. So we should come back to the whole uh, argument to say that, no, uh, I think the companies which are making a lot of profits and it's time for them to pay back uh, because of this huge profits and this great disparity that we are living in now. So that is why it's very important that to bring back, even World Bank is sort of following the same thing to say that, no, we should introduce GST, but that is a wrong thing to do because I think it's very important to make this pushback to say that, look, we the, the, there are big corporations, there are corporations which are polluting the environment, and that's why that we should increase the taxes on this. But the most common uh, uh, sort of like a blackmail they would always do to us is that if you increase taxes, we'll go somewhere else and invest. Because I think there's a lot of studies which have also shown is that if there's a sincere, there's a genuine investor which is really wants to invest in a particular country, um, taxes is not really a huge thing. They want to see other things. They want to have a good infrastructure. They want to see the, the skill level of the labor force there, the ease of doing business. So taxes is just one small part of it. Mm-hmm. But we have always told that you increase taxes, people are going to run away. FDI is going to run away from us. So he, this is always the, the, the whole two arguments to it, where there's corporations which are always pushing for a GST, so that they can say that no, don't increase corporate taxes, just increase taxes on the people. And then we that have to fight back and to say that, no, this that is a wrong way to go, that we should uh, increase the taxes on corporations because that is where the money is being made. That's where wealth is being made. And any increase in consumption tax is just going to push people down further down to poverty. And that problem of poverty will again fall upon the government's shoulders where they are also struggling with no revenue because they again fail to tax the corporations. Yeah.
0: In fact, I think even the World Bank themselves um, recently had to admit that any introduction of, of, you know, these kind of regressive blanket taxes like GST without taxing the rich, um, you know, having wealth tax, inheritance tax um, and, you know, expanding the common good, what's going to end up happening is just the brunt of the pressure is just going to disproportionately, uh, and impact is going to disproportionately fall on the masses, on the on the B40 especially. Before we wrap this conversation up, Siva, would you have a final message for us, Um, you know, since we are a few days away before the tabling of Budget 2024?
1: Yeah, I think the Budget 2024 is uh, very important. We are living in a situation whereby um, we hope that now the government will really address the key issues because, like, the last two years was basically uh, people would say that most of the budgets were just election budgets, huh? Uh, proposals uh, being made in the budget, allocations being made just to win over votes. But I think now we can really look at a more concrete budget addressing the key issues that uh, people will be facing. So we really hope that some of our proposals that PSM has put forward, uh, will. I mean, the whole idea is that how do we increase the social protection for the Rakyat? I think that's the, the basic key idea that we are putting forward. And I think the government has to really look into this thing uh, very, very uh, uh, deeply, and we hope that uh, many other issues will be also addressed also in terms of climate change, how the government should be uh, the provider of jobs, not only the private sector, um, how do we handle uh, businesses, small businesses, micro businesses, because they are also really suffering now. So this is a very crucial budget that we find that we hope that in fr- on Friday, the Prime Minister will, would have really considered all of these effects and really put forward a concrete budget to really take forward Malaysia and our, our working class forward. Siva, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: That was Sivarajan Rajan Arumugam, Secretary General of Party Socialist Malaysia. If you missed any part of the conversation, you can also check us out on podcast. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. This BFM Budget 2024 special was brought to you by Ma Sing. Reinvent spaces. Enhance life. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.